Welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Market School. Each week, we bring together a team of experts to bring you the latest news and insights to help you navigate the crypto markets. This is available on YouTube if you'd like to see all the great charts our team have put together, and also on podcasts for those of you on the move. Without further ado, let's get into this week's programming. Good morning and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. My name is Ben Floyd and I will be your host for today. Today, I'm joined by Greg Sutton and Tammy Yao, two CS sales traders, David Duong, our head of institutional research, and Sushikar, one of our resident DeFi wizards and also a senior blockchain researcher. Please keep in mind this call is pre-recorded at 10 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday the 11th and market prices may have moved by the time you get to listen to it. First, some quick disclaimers. This call is intended only for sophisticated investors and is for informational purposes only. Views expressed in this call are not necessarily those of Coinbase, and Coinbase is not providing any investment advice or recommendations through this call. Investing in cryptocurrency comes with risk. So, what are we going to go through today? David's going to run us through the macro, non-farm payrolls, CPI prints coming up this week, strong dollar, there's a ton going on, it means a lot for crypto, and he's going to run us through all the important parts of that. Tammy then runs us through what's going on in crypto. We've had an update around Mt. Gox. XRP have also had an update around their court case with the SEC. Um, and then there was also some interesting insights from option flows on Deribit. And then we hand over to Greg, who runs us through trade flows and some of the correlations in the space, what's happening and where could the next move be. And lastly, Sid covers Web3 and DeFi. There's been a large exploit at Binance BNB that he runs us through. MakerDAO are putting more capital into treasuries. And there's also been a few interesting things happening at Celsius and certainly an important PSA there. Before we get into it, uh, on your screen right now, if you're watching on YouTube, is a QR code that takes you to David's fantastic research and also some great reports from the rest of the Coinbase team. Please scan it, take a look. Uh, there's some, a ton of alpha and great insights there. If you are listening on Spotify, the link is in the show notes. Without further ado, David, over to you. Thanks a lot, Ben. So we have two big things that we are on the lookout for. I mean, we already just got non-farm payrolls, but as I've said kind of in the past, I don't really believe non-farm payrolls actually has a lot of shelf life here, but it is kind of showing us that the economic data hasn't been quite as bad as people would expect, which of course has a lot of implications for the Fed pivot. So I think two pieces of information to kind of grab onto there as well. We got a lower unemployment rate than expected. It came in at around three and a half percent. I would say that on both sides, Atlantic inflation, I'm sorry, excuse me, unemployment rates have actually remained somewhat low here. So that's something that's good to point out. And we also saw that monthly wage growth has actually been moderating, which kind of goes the opposite direction. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly where this data is kind of pointing to. I would still say that overall, the path of least resistance is for higher rates. But we're going to pay a lot of attention to what inflation is going to say this Thursday. And I think that for the market right now, is probably going to drive performance. Overall, I would say, if you look at what the Cleveland Fed is saying, they're saying that September is going to point to around 0.3% month-to-month growth, probably 8.2% year-on-year in terms of headline inflation. Uh, you know, That, for me, isn't necessarily signaling the change that the Fed really needs to see. Uh, it's hard to kind of get a sustained rally unless the evidence is much more clear that inflation is turning, and I don't think this is going to be it. So overall, I'm still very cautious about believing performance, especially risk for crypto assets, is going to be stabilizing anytime soon. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And, and to be fair to you, 
been, uh, I wouldn't say bearish, but I think cautious uh, for some some time now. So let's say we do see uh, a lower CPI print um, and we do see risk assets rally, crypto specifically. You're essentially saying you probably sell the rally because it's, it's not going to be a, a long, long-term thing. Yeah, it's not that I'm outright negative. I just, I'm waiting for the point where I think the peak negative sentiment has been priced in and I don't think we're there yet. The last two weeks though, we did see that the rates curve has actually started to really price out the Fed pivot that is uh, that was originally there in 2023. And now we're looking at a terminal rate closer to what's uh, reflected in the dot plot. So I think all of that is pointing to uh, good direction as far as looking at this turn in the markets. And you know, I have been on the side of thinking that a lot of the negative XX risk has kind of been priced out of the crypto markets already. So all, uh, you know, I, I think the crypto markets are better positioned than most to see that turn. But I just think that uh, there's still this view that the Fed here uh, is going to shift their stance. And, and I don't think that's gonna happen in the short term. Yeah, this is Greg. Um, I, I'd agree with that. I think the market's overly focused on trying to pinpoint this Fed pivot. And even if we do get a, a very low, surprisingly low CPI, number this week. I think any pivot's still very unlikely. The Fed has been very vocal that they want to whip this inflation. Um, and I don't think we're going to see uh, lower rates until we see CPI prints in the, you know, three, 2% range. Um, they're very cautious not to make the same mistake that we made in, uh, in the early 80s. So, to, to David's point, I think any rally we get here on a favorable number, I think you certainly want to uh, maybe ride the trend for a little bit, but you know, be very close to the exit. So, so we're seeing, you're going to see a stronger dollar for, for longer here. And obviously we've got BOE and uh, European, uh, Europeans also raising rates, but, but really not quite at the same pace. So. I guess, first of all, like, what does that stronger dollar mean for crypto? And second of all, we, we saw a article from Bloomberg saying that the Germans had agreed to issue joint European debt, which would just be such a game changer, given uh, that's kind of been one of the key challenges of the European project. Uh, it's then been denied this morning, but kind of curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that and, and what that might mean for the, the global economy. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Greg kind of take the debt question, but as far as the stronger dollar is concerned, I mean, we recognize that, of course, the denominator for a lot of crypto assets is the U.S. dollar. So a strong dollar is something that people are paying attention to. And we kind of went over this last week, right? It's a combination of the higher rates as, as, as well as a search for safety in the world. You know, I think two things kind of operate as an impediment to that stronger dollar right now. And the first is still positioning. You know, I, I think uh, already dollar strength positioning has already been quite heavy. So... The other thing is a lot of people are already starting to question, well, what's going to knock it off? Uh, and, you know, it's probably going to be some combination of fiscal and, and monetary developments in other parts of the world. But really, we haven't seen that happen quite yet. So the unfortunate aspect of this is that while the stronger dollar kind of helps us from the importing standpoint, of course, uh, it is also hurting our manufacturing industries because you know, many of the foreign producers have an advantage over us at this point. So, you know, it, it's not as if, uh, you know, having the strong dollar, which kind of supports us from an inflation standpoint, is necessarily all good because from an economic standpoint, it kind of uh, harms us. So there's this always this dichotomy kind of at play. 
my take on this is that probably we'll see the dollar strength remain through the course of 2022, probably into early 2023 before it really kind of starts to shift. Um, but you know, as a result, that's going to present a pretty tough challenge for a lot of risk assets. Yeah, and I think from a uh, from a crypto standpoint, I worry about a stronger dollar only in the fact that it could break something in the world economy somewhere. Now we don't know exactly what that is, but if we have you know some sort of currency crisis, um, you know, like we had in, in the late '90s, um, you know, crypto is going to get hit very very hard. Um, now after the fact, it may benefit from that, but uh, but the initial reaction is going to be lower. So I think it's these tail risks that we really need to be looking out for right now. And then now let's start zooming on crypto specifically. Uh, David, I know, I know there was a uh, report that you put out around Ethereum and some of the fundamentals. Like, forgetting the macro for a second, let's start crypto trades on its own. Like, what are some of the exciting things happening there? So I think uh, there's this kind of misinterpretation that, you know, post-merge, ETH actually underperformed because of something idiosyncratic to Ethereum. And that's not really the case. You know, I think that a lot of this had to do with macro trends, but certainly the fundamentals are important here. And uh, there were a few kind of disappointments. One, I think a lot of people expected that supply growth was going to turn negative right after the merge. And it hasn't happened primarily because activity isn't quite there. Uh, you really needed to actually see the base fee get to a threshold around 15.2 guay before that actually starts to kick in. And we're somewhere around 12 and a half. So, you know, these present issues for people who are looking at this and saying, well, the revenue growth has actually dropped by around 78% over the last six months. So what really kind of brings demand into that? That also affects then what's happening on the staking yields front. And staking yields, of course, have increased because you've absorbed uh, the, the benefits of taking transaction fees on board. So, you know, previously where it was around four and a half percent, you've got that additional 1.3 percentage points more plus MEV, which is just south of like around one percentage point. And of course, I'm using like trends. So it's your, your mileage may vary when it comes to kind of these indicative numbers, because I'm you know basing this off the fact that in August, September, uh, we were getting transaction fees daily around 500 ETH. So that's about half of what we got six months ago. And even on the MEV side, it's paying you around 350 ETH uh, per day compared to what we had previously. So I think these things kind of present challenges to people's minds. But what we're probably going to need to see regardless is what will get demand filled that block space because that is what Ethereum is here to do. Ethereum's in the business of filling that block space. And we are seeing that the innovations are coming online in terms of people looking at how entities could be applied to music or domain names, or other things, uh, you know, stable coin payments are, are getting there. Plus what I would really like to see are, you know, you know, we talk a lot about institutional adoption of crypto, but I want to see institutional use of crypto to settle trades on the blockchain and things like that. I think once that we start to see that, then uh, we will see a much more robust kind of network. And ultimately, you know, most of this stuff is still getting built on Ethereum. So that for me is still a large positive. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's essentially a, a venture asset class which just marks the market daily. And I think sometimes we forget that, that it takes time to build projects and uh, it doesn't happen overnight. So uh, I know personally as a user at the moment, while the bear market is obviously not great for kind of asset prices, the ability to use Ethereum is so much better now. Like no longer are you paying $200 in gas fees to move something from A to B or, or, or do something a little more complex. 
Um, but Tammy, curious, what's going on uh, from a crypto perspective in the market? What's moving and, and what are some of the things you've been focusing on? Yeah, thanks, Ben. As David mentioned, with the flat NFP numbers dashing hopes of a Fed pivot, this also means that the current crypto winter might stay on for a while longer. And we are likely to see the compression in Bitcoin and ETH fall that start the post-merge continue. Looking at the markets, Bitcoin and Ether are down around 6% week on week, hovering around the $19,000 and $1,300 mark respectively. And according to Keiko, this is the fourth consecutive week that Bitcoin is closing Sunday night inside the $19,000 level. On Bitcoin, we did see some good news last Friday on Mount Gox's credit registration process, where creditors have up till 10 January next year to register their pay information. And this timeline is good news to investors who are fearing that the release of Bitcoin from this process is going to put heavy pressure on the market. In fact, a couple of exchanges have since indicated that it's likely going to be 60 to 90 days from point of receipt to distribution. So this definitely pushes the supply overhang from this year to next, which is a relief for investors. On the other hand, Ether is not doing too bad for itself too, after Fidelity's launch of the Ethereum index fund last week, following strong demand from clients. Despite large moves in US equities, the beta for crypto seems to be relatively muted this time round, with realized 10-day PTC vol at 34% as of yesterday, which is exactly half of the six-month average at 68%. This is notable considering the larger-than-average price swings in the S&P last week. Flow data from Derivit shows a trend towards cutting losses on long-put exposure, with less investor appetite to buy the downside. And this is suggesting to me that many investors are recognizing the support level of 19,000 for Bitcoin and 1,300 in ETH as a market bottom for now, as these levels have also held up quite a few times so far this year. And this could be why crypto is barely moving, despite S&P closing 3% lower last Friday. One sign suggesting that we are near market bottom for the DeFi space is the announcement for the Tree Asset Management that they have invested $5.3 million in the Sushi Swap protocol. And this was right after a new CEO was approved for Sushi. As Sushi is one of the components of the DeFi Pulse Index, this index outperformed the majors this week and only closed 1.5% lower. Next, looking at the alts, Ripple is up 8% this week after a US District Court judge ruled to release correspondence written by a former SEC director. And this was seen as a positive development for Ripple in their lawsuit to prove that the SEC has taken an unclear approach to regulating crypto. Chile's retraced by 15% last week after a month-long rally on the back of its partnership deal with Spanish football club FC Barcelona. While Luna Classic also sold off as investors were disappointed by Binance's burn of approximately $1.8 million worth of Luna Classic, which was only about 0.08% of the total supply of the token and was barely enough to move the scale. Outside of this, headlines we've been watching are Binance Smart Chain's $100 million bridge exploit, which will be covered in the DeFi section later, as well as Celsius' reveal of thousands of its customers' transactions in a public court filing last week. Outside of corporates, Japan's Prime Minister also announced intentions for the country to invest in Web3 space, while India's central bank also plans to launch a digital rupee pilot. And that's all from me on a markets update. Back to you, Ben. So David, Tammy mentioned uh, XRP, obviously some, uh, some potentially positive news uh, in the last few days. Curious to kind of hear your, hear your thoughts on that. Like, what's next in this, uh, in this saga, do you think? Sure. So uh, what happened with Ripple was 
you know, predominantly a procedural victory because effectively what they were asking the court to, to, to pass on was a summary judgment, um, which means that it would decide whether the SEC had enough evidence against Ripple to actually pass a case. And in this, uh, in, in this situation, they determined that actually they need more information from the SEC. So predominantly they're focused on the speech coming from the uh, SEC, former SEC, I, was, I should say, Corporation Finance Division Director William Hinman that suggests that ETH itself was not a security because it was sufficiently decentralized, which has implications for Ripple because Ripple believes that their case was, you know, that their company rather was unfairly targeted and that the case against them was arbitrary. So, you know, they are trying to use that as a, as, as a way to kind of say, well, why is it that, that it applied there, but not to us? So I think this is kind of interesting, predominantly too, because this case actually uh, started before Gary Gensler actually took over at the SEC. Um, this has major implications for how we're going to be looking at, uh, at cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency regulation, because uh, you know the way the SEC kind of took their approach, I think, has shifted over time and, and pre-Gensler versus post-Gensler. But uh, there's still a lot of questions surrounding whether what the SEC has been doing has been regulation by enforcement, whether that should be the, the way the, the, the right approach is. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see uh, how this is actually going to play out for the rest of the market. Yeah, I agree. I think there's probably a film in there somewhere at some point. And uh, actually on that small plug, the, uh, the Coinbase film was released on Friday 7th. So definitely go check that out. I haven't, haven't had a chance yet. But um, and, and then switching gears a little bit, I'm, I'm curious. Tammy mentioned uh, debit flows and people are not rolling their downside protection as much and realize VAR is trading at a much lower, lower level than it has done historically. Greg, I know this is a space that you keep an eye on. Uh, curious to hear your thoughts here. Yeah, thanks. Um, so it makes me a bit nervous that folks aren't rolling their downside protection. Downside protection is generally supportive of the market. And when we couple this data point with the fact that we're seeing declining on exchange volumes, and rising correlations. Uh, it sets us up, I believe, for uh, what could be a sharp move lower. And you know that's because what we're actually seeing here is we're seeing liquidity, or in another word, interest, leave the market. Um, at the same time, we're seeing risk assets move lower on the back of um, you know, poor economic data and correlations rise. So it's almost as if uh, crypto just hasn't woken up to the the new um, you know economic situation we found ourselves in uh, you know in this fall. So I get a little nervous um, when I see price action like this. Now, to be fair, this could all work in crypto's benefit if we do get that bear market rally that we were speaking about earlier. Um, I could see investors saying, "Okay, all clear. I'm going to come in and buy some of the best performing assets," which you know, have been some of these crypto tokens. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, as a trader, I'm very concerned. I think the risk is to the downside here. So, so just, just playing that out, Greg, we see a break lower and maybe we see uh, vol uh, rally as well. Like what, what sort of ranges do you think we could see BTC lead that? Yeah, well, I think we could certainly retest uh, the summer lows. So for ETH, that would be, you know, sub a thousand. And um, you know, likely see a, a 17 handle on BTC, um, but it's all very hard to say. Um, I think it really depends on you know how the macro environment shapes up. And um, I do think 
po the positive side is a lot of the leverage has been cleaned out of the crypto market. Um, so we could see a break lower um, if we get some sort of crisis somewhere. Uh, but we could also just see a slow grind lower as, um, you know, as interest and focus is diverted, you know, elsewhere. Yeah, I absolutely I hope for a slow grind versus a sharp move because as we start to get close to some of these big figures, whether it's 1,200 in ETH or 1,000 in ETH or 15,000 in BTC, I'm sure there's going to be points where people that still have got leverage on do get stopped out. Um, and, and then we kind of see, could see a sharp move there from there. But but, uh, but who knows? Uh, only time will tell. But what are we seeing on the uh, exchange and uh, on the desk? Yeah, so um, so on the desk, we, we see pretty balanced flow from our, our hedge fund community. Um, private wealth has been a net seller, which is surprising. Um, that group is generally uh, on the buy side. Uh, now, that may be because they're tending to other parts of their portfolio, um, which are, are likely sitting on losses now. Um, we're still... Uh, seeing strong net buying from crypto hedge funds and uh, crypto focused VCs. Now buy interest tends to be focused uh, in you know, some of the derivative protocol sectors like SNX, smart contract platforms um, and identity tokens. Uh, on the sell side, we're seeing interest to sell uh, lending and, and file storage sectors. Interesting, some of the, uh, some of the older school sectors there um, seeing, uh, seeing an offer, I guess. A lot of these folks have been invested in these for a long, long time, so it makes sense for them to, to be kind of turning their portfolio over a little bit. Um, so it's kind of staying on the on the kind of Web3 and, and DeFi side of things. Sid, what, what's been going on in your world? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, so this week saw one of the largest DeFi exploits uh, happen, actually, for over $570 million on the Binance Smart Chain Token Hub, uh, which is basically a bridge that connects the uh, BNB Beacon Chain, which is responsible for consensus, and then the BNB Smart Chain, which is the actual EVM smart contract uh, chain where users transact. And essentially what happened was that the hacker was able to uh, forge a, a, a low-level proof called a Merkle proof on one of the libraries that's associated with the bridge. It's, it's, it's like a Cosmos uh, IAVL uh, library. Um, and basically, which allowed him to, him or her or they to uh, uh, manufacture 2 million BNB and withdraw that from the bridge. Uh, and uh, this BNB was then sent to various different places, uh, including you know around 380 million into Venus protocol, which is a lending market on, on, on Binance Smart Chain. Uh, they then borrowed stable coins off of that BNB position and then sent it to uh, multiple chains, uh, Ethereum, Polygon, Phantom, uh, and other chains. And uh, they, they managed to send $110 million worth of, of, of tokens into other chains before the actual BNB chain was halted. Uh, of course, chain halting usually isn't supposed to happen in, you know, in decentralized setups, but uh, you know, the BNB chain has 26 active validators and um, all of them were contacted and they, they halted the chain for about eight hours uh, so that the movement of funds could be contained. And then basically the current state of affairs is uh, they're holding a governance vote to decide what to do with the kind of hacked funds to whether to freeze them, whether to burn them. Um, you know, introducing a bounty for catching or, or disclosing the hacker and others, other options like that. So 
um, you know, it's a pretty big hack. To put it into context, if you, you know folks that are seeing the PowerPoint on the right-hand side is the leaderboard for top hacks exploits uh, in 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 the crypto space, and uh, basically this is like number three on the list, uh, which is pretty sizable. Um, or you know, five of the top ten have come in this year alone, and most of them have to do with bridges and cross-chain transfer of assets. So kind of a trend that we're seeing here uh, play out. And, and what does that mean for, for, for Binance Smart Chain? Because there was certainly a few in the, in the space that were saying, well, like Ethereum's great, but like Binance Smart Chain is, is actually just as good and better in many ways. Um, is this their, their DAO hack moment? Uh, and do they recover from this? Or is this kind of irreparable damage potentially? It is kind of their DAO hack moment uh, in, a, in a sense. Uh, the kind of differences is that, you know, it is a little bit more, far more of a centralized chain uh, because they have far fewer validators. They were able to pause the chain. Um, you know, it's a hundred million kind of transferred out of the chain. So they, they don't really have control over that. But uh, other than that, at least they were able to contain it. So th there is a possibility of recovery. Obviously BNB as an asset is enormous market cap wise. So it's not too impacted price wise by this. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is a seminal moment. It remains to be seen what they'll do with the governance vote and how that's, that's swayed uh, most likely via Binance itself. Yeah, and curious, how important is it that it's 27 valid validators versus kind of thousands on, on ETH? At lo longer term, like how important do you think that is? Yeah, the, for, there's pros and cons, right? The pro was they were able to reach them pretty quickly, even though they were in different time zones and halt the chain. Uh, the cons is, you know, halting the chain is is generally, I mean, it's like reeks of centralization, right? So it's, it's a trade-off there. And... Uh, you know, it's like depending on what the user wants. Do they want somewhere a little more secure, more centralized, potentially, uh, or truly decentralized and, and a kind of an open financial system, right? So that's the eternal trade-off. Yep. Yeah. Interesting to see how this one plays out. And uh, what, what else has been going on? Uh, yeah. So in 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 other news in DeFi, so MakerDAO, one of the largest you know um, stablecoin providers of the Dai stablecoin, uh, began deploying. Their stablecoin reserves, uh, they had a vote to kind of deploy $500 million worth of their reserves into U.S. treasuries and corporate bonds. Uh, they're doing this by partnering up with an asset advisor called Monetalis, and uh, they're going to set up a legal structure, et cetera, and, and gain exposure to, you know, U.S. treasuries. Uh you know, they, they're using an asset asset management firm to have like a crypto to fiat gateway um, and uh, kind of convert the stable coins into actual U.S. dollars and gain gain exposure to uh, treasuries and corporate bonds. And so this, uh, you know, a few days ago, they voted to actually start this process with a test transaction of a million dollars. So uh, we'll see how this develops, but it's a pretty sizable uh, chunk uh, of their of their reserves, their their stated goal is to you know strengthen their balance sheet and you know diversify it a bit more. It's it's amazing seeing Bailey Gifford on there. So they're like a really old school British investment manager. I think they're founded like early early 20th century, and like they've got north of 450 billion in AUM, and they're getting involved in this. I know like some of their PMs have been super forward in tech, but to see them get involved here is incredible. And then I just want to touch upon um, there's some news out of. Uh, Kind of Celsius, um, I think it was around some users being doxxed and also some uh, some interesting things happening before the withdrawals were halted um, a few months ago. Uh, apparently, they pushed back, but uh, you know the filing was over twenty nine thousand pages, and uh, it contained information on over six hundred thousand customers uh, with their names and transaction amounts and times. 
uh, and the crypto assets that they transacted in uh, when they, uh, you know, transacted with Celsius. And so obviously it's a huge data kind of privacy issue where, you know, essentially a person could match the physical name of the customer with the amounts and then uh, match that on chain with their addresses to essentially dox them. So some folks have already started, begun to do this process. There's some open source websites with leaderboards of top transaction amounts and things of that nature, uh, which is interesting and also very concerning, you know, for privacy. Uh, and, uh, you know, also something for anyone who's interacted with Celsius to double check and make sure, uh, you know, the information, uh, you know, the privacy information is kept, kept private. Maybe you need to change addresses, et cetera, uh, kind of PSA for any Celsius user. Uh, and then, yeah, kind of weeks before this, the the Celsius team froze withdrawals for customers, you know, their founder, Alex Mashinsky, did withdraw, you know, $10 million from the company. Uh, and, and, you know, a few kind of somewhat sketchy interactions. So, you know, remains to be seen how this plays out, but, uh, but something to watch for. Thanks so much for that run through. So, yeah, an important PSA there for any of those that have used Celsius. Definitely um, check it out and, and make sure if you need to change your wallets, you do. But uh, that is a wrap for today. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining and have a lovely week. So that's the end of this week's programming. To learn more, follow us on Twitter at Coinbase Insta. And check out our Research and Insights Hub for all the latest research from the team. Both links can be found in the podcast description. See you next week. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as the giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.